Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's UPR's fall member drive. Back in the spring, during the spring member drive, we talked with emergency room doctor, writer, and UPR member Marion Bishop, who works at Cache Valley Hospital and Brigham City Community Hospital. Uh, we also uh, talked with her last year as part of an episode featuring frontline workers. And with the pandemic continuing, we decided to check back in to see how she's been dealing with COVID-19 professionally and personally uh, since we talked last. We're also going to talk about vaccines and what it's like at the hospital these days and what a COVID-19 endgame might uh, look like. Uh, Marion Bishop, uh, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's really a pleasure, and I appreciate you caring about what's happening in hospitals right now. So let let me ask you, you're an emergency room doctor. Um, what what are things like right now? We're we're busy. Mm. <laughs> we're um, I'm working harder probably than I ever have. Not probably. I'm working harder certainly than I have in my entire career. It's a it's a hectic time, and um, there's some things that are really stressful about that, and there's some things that are very satisfying about that. It's it's nice to feel useful, even though it's a difficult situation. So uh, was there, uh, did you get less busy, you know, and it seemed like during the height of the summer, the, the COVID numbers did go down and uh, it was, yes. was there a corresponding uh, reduction in, in services, at least for COVID at the hospital? There, there was, uh, there were fewer inpatients and I saw fewer COVID patients in the emergency room. Uh, but for me, COVID kind of never went away. Uh, there, there was definitely a surge and then a, a lull, and now we're in a surge again. Um, but yes, there, there, it, it did quiet down for a little bit, and I was, I was grateful for that. So a surge again. Uh, maybe tell me about that. Do you, do you, do you have COVID patients coming in in, in distress? I guess we do, and. I think, in general, the, the COVID patients that we see fall into kind of three categories. There are patients with kind of mild disease who need need some support, you know, maybe need some guidance about how to manage the disease. Uh, there are patients who are uh, kind of moderately ill, maybe who need to be in the hospital for a day or two, who need some oxygen and some of the therapies that we provide in the hospital. And then there are patients who are dangerously ill and, you know, require things like BiPAP or high-flow oxygen or even intubation. And so that's that's kind of the category. The, the people in the first group usually can go home. Sometimes they qualify for treatments like monoclonal antibodies that can be helpful. You know, the second group might go home with some oxygen or might stay in the hospital for a day or two. And and the, the third group, you know, move on to you know, ICU stays and are, are pretty ill. I just heard a uh, report on the on the radio, NPR, in fact, uh, UPR, uh, last week, I think it was, the week before, uh, they were interviewing uh, doctors in hospital in Oregon. And they were saying there, at least in that particular area, uh, so many COVID patients overwhelming the system and uh, even serious surgeries were being canceled, sometimes the day of. Cancer surgeries, brain surgeries, et cetera. Uh, because of uh, being overwhelmed by COVID. Uh, are we seeing anything like that? So I haven't seen anything like that locally. Um, I think the hospital systems have been really creative, and I'm actually very grateful to HCA Healthcare. They've they've got a pretty good surge-up plan and a pretty good kind of come-down plan when, when things tail off. But we are doing a lot of 
uh, sometimes moving patients from one hospital to another within the system. And uh, IHC has also done this, and there's been some sharing back and forth between hospital systems, which I just salute the whole community for, you know, when when competitors become allies against a disease, I think it says something amazing about both organizations. But we've seen a lot of um, mo- moving back and forth. If, if one hospital is has kind of a lot of COVID patients, uh, we might send a patient to another hospital for a surgery or vice versa. Um, the hospitals I work at are pretty small, and we're accustomed to moving things on to larger hospitals, uh, you know, for ICU care and those kinds of things. But we've actually been a receiving hospital for, you know, uh, for surgeries and for care that doesn't require ICU care. And we've been really proud and happy to do that, to, to kind of help out that way. So we're, we're kind of in a, in a flexible moving things around to make it possible to still give people care kind of, kind of thing. And I, I salute, you know, the state and these hospital systems for, for that plan. What's the, uh, I don't know if the hospital does forecasting, but uh, what's, what are you thinking collectively? Uh, numbers going to maybe remain high through the winter kind of thing? I, I think they will. And, you know, there are people smarter than me who are modeling this from like a bird's eye view. Uh, you know, I'm best at telling you kind of what I'm seeing on the ground and uh, like, like I have kind of more first-person data than, than I want sometimes. But uh, I'm hoping that we'll get through this Delta surge in the next, you know, probably four to six to eight weeks. I, I mean, if, if COVID has told us anything, it's that it's unpredictable. So, I, you know, don't hold me to that. But I'm hoping that, that the Delta surge will come but then or will wind down. But then my my fear and the fear of most physicians for the winter is that um, winter without COVID is already a very, very busy time in hospitals because of things like influenza and RSV uh, and pneumonia. And now we will add COVID into that mix. And I think this is, well, two points. Uh, emergency rooms, are like what we do, and even in hospitals, it's quite seasonal. The summer is all about injury. Um, people are out recreating, they're playing. And so in the summer, I go to work, you know, prepared to, you know, reduce dislocated shoulders and help people who have fractures and lacerations. And in the winter, it's all about illness. Um, we are indoors and we swap germs. And so people get pneumonia and influenza and, and kids get diseases like bronchiolitis and RSV. And the, uh, most physicians are worried that the the seasonal illness that we are accustomed to having in the winter, we will have this year, um, you know, in part because fewer people are wearing masks and we're out and about more than we were last year. So we'll have a lot of that seasonal illness, and then we will also have COVID. So the, the problem isn't just COVID, it's that it's COVID and we're still doing everything else. That was a long answer. I hope it answered your question. Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, well, speaking of those other uh, you know, viral illnesses especially, um, I, I think I noticed last, anecdotally, maybe you can confirm this more scientifically or not, um, I think I noticed fewer colds, you know, uh, flus, yes. et cetera. Is that the fact with more of us wearing masks last year? That was my experience in the hospital. In fact, uh, the doctors that I work with, my, my partners, we – 
we kind of kept a running tab, like, have, have you seen a kid with RSV? Have, have you seen RSV? And I diagnosed a patient with influenza B uh, maybe two weeks ago, and a lot of us joked that we hadn't seen that disease for 18 months. So we're, we're definitely sharing more germs right now than we were uh, a year ago. And it's encouraging that people have been vaccinated, but 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 as I said, winter was already a disease-rich environment, <laughs> mm. uh, especially in you know these kind of mountainous, colder states. So that brings me to to masks, uh, and I'll, I'll divulge uh, you know a couple of personal things here. Uh, so you know, in the summertime, I, I you know kind of didn't wear my mask as much. Uh, you know, it seemed like you know a little healthier environment and relaxed a little bit and, and was happy to do so just you know, as a relief um but uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago i i got a cold and uh man it was a doozy it put me it put me down it was uh and uh, so that that along with university here encouraging us to to wear masks uh, more faithfully uh i've got my mask on very faithfully in part because i don't want to share something like that with anybody else and I kind of don't want to get another cold or flu or whatever, you know, just the regular stuff, uh, let, let alone COVID. Well, I, I think you're taking a generous and really uh, kind of smart-minded approach. My, I understand everyone's frustrations with masks because, uh, you know, they're uncomfortable, they get in the way, they're a hassle. Um, and partly I understand it because I've been wearing one for, you know, the last 15 years practicing medicine. And, and long before the public knew how kind of uncomfortable and uh, frustrating they could be, you know, that was something we joked about in hospitals. But it also was something that we learned to do in hospitals because it kept us safe. It kept us from communicating any illness we had to people who were more ill. And uh, by putting masks on patients, it also kept us safe. And so it's, I, I sympathize with folks who find them annoying. I, I take every one of those boxes myself. And uh, it's also, you know, without question, a very old-fashioned and a very effective form of protection against all kinds of bugs, not just COVID. And, and sometimes I tell my kids that, you know, they say, oh, mom, if we got COVID, we'd get through it just fine. And I say, you know, you're probably right. But, you know, if you had another bug and got COVID on top of that, you, there would that that would not be easy, and and they're actually seeing people in hospitals now that kids that have COVID and RSV simultaneously, and that's a whole other deal of magnitude of concern uh, uh, for that patient and as a physician who's the caregiver. Yeah, that that would be very concerning. Uh, there's a social aspect always has been to mask wearing, right? Um, I've noticed uh, as we've kind of ramped back up a little bit. Some <laughs> ramped back up with mask wearing. Others are just done, right? And then it's over and never going to wear a mask again. Um, I, I don't know. I, I sometimes feel a little uncomfortable if I'm the only one in, in the room wearing a mask or, you know, one of a very few. I understand that. And I've, you know, like you, I was grateful to wear one less frequently in the summer. And particularly outdoors, uh, I, I rarely wear one, but I have also begun wearing them more frequently and particularly in any public places. I saw a meme the other day. It was a little clip, a video clip, and I'm not sure where it came from, but a dad was putting on a mask. Uh, well, a dad, a dad was saying to a kid, what's a superhero? And the kid said, someone who helps other people. And then the dad put a mask on the kid and sent him out the door. 
And I thought that was really beautiful. And both because it's true, our wearing masks protects other people, and also because it, I think it set the right tone for that child. Like that child was learning to perceive as mask wearing as not political, not because cool kids do it and, you know, kids who aren't cool don't or vice versa. But I'm part of a community and this can be something I'm proud of. And that's the way, that, that's the pep talk I give myself when I'm the only person masking up. And it's also the pep talk I've given my kids. I, I told them when the school year started, they're, they're wearing masks. And I said, you know, there may not be many of you, but there will probably be more as the winter goes on. And that's proved true in both of their, in both of their grades. Um, and I've also told them that, you know, every time any of us show up at a party or a church event or a work uh, setting wearing a mask, there's going to be somebody else who's grateful to see that and will feel liberated and free to put theirs on. And so I think it is, is, is something we can all do on behalf of each other and that also it can become a little bit contagious, right? Like, I'm not wearing this because I'm a Republican. I'm not wearing this because I'm a Democrat. I'm not wearing this because of who I voted for. I'm wearing this because it's something I can do to help all of you stay safe and to make me feel comfortable. And I'm fine with that. <laughs> and, you know, maybe getting back to that, that old-fashioned community aspect of it and feeling confident about our choices. Uh, it seems like we've had that dichotomy. I mean, it exists anyway, but especially in bold relief uh, with uh, with the pandemic, uh, juxtaposing individual liberty versus collective responsibility. And uh, I don't know, it, it kind of should be the, you know, the two sides of the same coin, but it certainly seems that some folks in society are emphasizing the one and others are emphasizing the other. And I, I don't know how we get together on that. Well, once again, people smarter than me can figure out how to bridge that divide. And sometimes I, I think those divisions are artificial because uh, I think wearing a mask can be, if everyone was wearing, willing to wear a mask, all of us would have an incredible amount of liberty. There would be no fear about where we could go or what we would do. And, you know, similarly, well, or and at the same time, I, I really respect people's, you know, desire and um, the importance of people making their own decisions on behalf of themselves. But I, but I think sometimes we, well, I, I think about it sometimes in terms of being really proud of being a Westerner. You know, we have this kind of uh, Western work ethic about I can do hard things and I'm hardy and I've come from a long history of people who've done hard things. And, you know, we stuck it out in these cold winters back, you know, uh, in, in pioneer days, and we got through it. Well, I, I think, and there's a wonderful kind of resilience and independence to that model, but I think when we tell ourselves those stories and, and, and we say, I'm, you know, I'm perpetuating this kind of rugged individualism, we forget how much those, those original you know, founders of some of these communities leaned on each other. They would have not have survived without each other. You know, it was too much for one family to put up a home, and so everybody came. You know, if the school burned down, everyone went to kind of, you know, help put out the fire. And, you know, metaphorically, you know, this is kind of a fire of our times. And I think, you know, they're, they're just as, as, you know, years ago, people may have 
been willing to pitch in and do something that served the community. I, I think there's, it's worthwhile thinking about it in that regard because our, our survival kind of depends on each other. It's, it's not something any of us can do alone. Uh, after a break, I want to get into talking about uh, vaccines, vaccination, and um, and uh, certainly this hour I want to talk about the end game. That seems like a wrong word because it contains the word the, the subword uh, game, but uh, the the end uh, result, uh, where we're headed with uh, with COVID. Um, but that's in the in the future here. We're talking with Dr. Marion Bishop. Uh, she is an emergency room doctor, works at Cache Valley Hospital and Brigham City Community Hospital. And she's a writer, and you can check uh, her uh, website out, mariancbishop.com, mariancbishop.com. Some very interesting pieces there. And she's a UPR member, and that's where I want to go next, uh, Dr. Bishop. Um, so we uh, maybe... Uh, I'll just ask you this. Uh, there are a lot of people who listen to UPR, and we thank them for listening. There are fewer people who become members of uh, UPR. That's a critical step, and I wonder what your encouragement to those folks would be to, to become members of UPR. Oh, there are a thousand reasons, or at least, you know, 20, why I appreciate UPR, and I'm happy to be a member. Uh, we've just been talking about community, and I think about the community service that uh, local radio stations provide, and I'm incredibly grateful for Utah Public Radio. I love knowing the local news. I love knowing what's happening in the community. I'm raising my family, and uh, UPR is just a wonderful source of information in that regard. Do uh, do the kids listen? Are they, are they, yeah, they do. They're backseat NPR <laughs> they, they people? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. What were you saying? Uh, no, I, I, some some people, some kids are introduced to, uh, to to NPR and and public radio by sitting in the back seat, kind of a thing. Yes, um, and my kids call it mom's radio. <laughs> okay, <laughs> they, uh, you know, we move from kind of whatever music they're listening to, and I'm like, okay, it's, I'm gonna. They're like, oh, is it time for mom's radio? And uh, and I say yes. And you know, it's interesting. We were on a road trip. Uh, Oh, this was over the summer, and there was a piece about one of the the, the women who helped develop the mRNA vaccines, and it's really a, a an amazing success story uh, about an immigrant woman to the U.S. And I said, okay, we're we're turning off other screens, we're turning off other devices, we're going to listen to this this story. And I called up a a recording uh, from it that had been on on NPR, and we listened to it. And at the end of it, my daughter was like. Okay, mom. Thanks for making us listen. That was great. So, <laughs> it's a, a good way to learn about the world, even when you're 12. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, uh, Dr. Bishop is a member of UPR. Won't you join her in becoming a member of Utah Public Radio? Um, and you have a tremendous impact when you do so. Uh, you uh, you really help the whole thing work. You are the uh, single most important source of funding for Utah Public Radio. And the good news is you don't have to do it all by yourself. We uh, pool together as a community and we're able to pay for programs like Access Utah and the many other programs that you hear on Utah Public Radio. Uh, here's how to do it. Uh, you can um, uh, always have to make this disclaimer because we repeat the program in the evening. If you're looking at the clock, it's in the 9 o'clock hour uh, in the morning. Uh, call 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. I'll say that once again. one 800 826 
1-800-826-1495. Or you can go online to upr.org. That's upr.org. A lot of thank you gifts, uh, and uh, you can uh, match uh, your level to one of those if you'd like and uh, get all that information either online or from the volunteer when you call. Uh, upr.org is the website, or uh, you can uh, pledge on the UPR uh, app as well. And uh, a big thank you uh, in advance. We're coming down uh, to the last couple of days of the uh, fall member drive, and so if you've been thinking about this, while you're thinking about it right now, I encourage you to make that call. 800-826-1495 or upr.org. We'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from listeners like you. And Auto Evolution, owned and operated by Ron Stagg, keeping Cash Valley automobiles on the road for more than 20 years with service, repair, and maintenance. Located at 347 West Airport Road in North Logan. Information is available by calling 435-753-2521. Support also comes from USU Libraries, presenting the 26th Annual Arrington Mormon History Lecture, Thursday, October 7th at 7 in the Danes Concert Hall. Information at 797-2631. The West's relationship with water is complicated, and it's only getting more complex. Last year was considerably dry. Maybe the driest we'd seen, and now we're looking at even drier. I think it's been described as a slow-moving train wreck. I'm Alex Hager, reporting on the water issues that define the western U.S. Listen for stories about the Colorado River Basin on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking with Dr. Marion Bishop. Uh, she is an emergency room doctor, works at Cache Valley Hospital and Brigham uh, City Community Hospital. And we're talking about the pandemic and uh, many th- related things uh, here in a special uh, member drive edition of the program. As we uh, launch into the, this next segment of the program, just a reminder, you can go to upr.org, upr.org, and, and take care of your membership to Utah Public Radio. A critical step, and uh, I'm thanking you in advance, upr.org, looking for support for Utah Public Radio and for Access Utah. Uh, so, Marion Bishop, um, I want to get into talking about vaccinations. Um so I want to read this from a, a blog post that you uh, that you posted. By the way, MarianCBishop.com. MarianCBishop.com is the place to go to, to look at Dr. Bishop's writing. Uh, writes uh, beautifully in these blog posts and other pieces. Uh, so you say you were in Target, I believe. This is in the spring. Uh, passing the pharmacy on the way out of the store. I'll just read this. I noticed two young men waiting in an observation area after having received their COVID immunizations. I walked past them and then walked back. I know this is none of my business and that you don't even know me, I blurted out, almost in spite of myself, but I'm an ER doctor and just wanted to thank you for getting the vaccine. The faces on these 220-somethings, strangers until I lumped them together, lit up under their masks. For my mother and grandfather, one of them said, pointed to a Band-Aid on his deltoid. Um, So that (laughs) certainly points to that community spirit, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and I can just imagine you as a doctor being very concerned about vaccinations and, uh, you know, uh, at least figuratively high-fiving these, these young men. Um, so that was, you know, this is kind of a, 
a kind of an emotional high for many. Uh, hey, we're all going to get the vaccinations. Um, and and then we kind of hit a, a ceiling. Does that concern you? Uh, it, it is concerning. And, you know, I'll tell you when I got the vaccine on December 23rd at, you know, about noon, I, I, I remember the moment because, you know, it felt like a holiday. It, it was something that so many of us in healthcare had been looking forward to and just counting down the moments because I spent the last six months of last year watching people die and watching families grieve. And even the people who didn't die, watching folks with profound disability because of the virus. And even people who had been moderately ill, you know, I'd seen people lose jobs. I'd seen just all kinds of upset because of the vaccine. And I saw it as this, uh, the, you know, this opportunity to give a, to get it as, you know, kind of freedom from just all the miserable things that I had witnessed throughout the, the year last year. So I was incredibly grateful for the vaccine and figured that everyone would feel exactly as I did, <laughs> right? Um, and it's been interesting to watch, you know, through the through the spring and into the summer, uh, people struggle with their own feelings about the vaccine. Uh, and I've realized that, you know, not everyone has the same data points that I do. <laughs> you know, uh, for me, it, there was no question it was a good idea. And of course, there's a broad spectrum of reasons why people don't get vaccinated, right? Uh, misinformation, um, you know, uh, genuine fears. You, you, you do hear anecdotally of uh, some people who've had problems, sometimes severe problems, after getting vaccinated. Um, uh, politics, unfortunately, uh, uh, plays a part. I just pulled up the, I just, uh, you know, Googled uh, Utah vaccination rate. Um, and hopefully these are, uh, you know, correct uh, numbers. About 56% nationally vaccination rate. Utah's at about, about 50%. California, 58%. Uh, New York, uh, 63% vaccination rate. Uh, so not where, uh, you know, not where I'm sure a medical professional like yourself would, would want us to be at this point. I, I certainly wish those numbers were higher. And I've, it's, not a, it's not an exaggeration to say that I've seen lives be saved because of the vaccine. Um, at the same time, I appreciate uh, the anxiety and the concern that some people have about receiving the vaccine. And I think that you kind of have to meet those folks where they are. Um, one of the things I would say is that every vaccine comes with some amount of risk. It's been that way since the start of time. But whatever whatever the risk is of the vaccine, of the COVID-19 vaccines, it's infinitesimally smaller than the risk of the disease. <laughs> and it's hard sometimes to know that if you haven't seen the disease. But as someone who has, I can tell you that I would take that small risk of the vaccine any day. And I would also take the risk of exposing my kids to the vaccine. Um, my 12-year-old my has been vaccinated rather than have her confront the risk of, of the disease. It's a difficult decision for people and for parents to kind of go through that risk management calculation in their brains. But but whatever the, the risk of the vaccine is, it's much smaller than the disease. 
I don't want to get into some specifics. Uh, have you uh, talk about vaccinations and, uh, and and protections and and all of that? But uh, I want to do one last thing on the sort of the social and emotional part of this. Um, I read an article recently in the New York Times. It's the writer Sarah Smarsh, um, and it's titled "What to Do with Our COVID Rage." Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've heard this from, uh, from a lot of, a lot of folks. Um, you can just feel it from some folks. Uh, I'll just read for part of this op-ed, Sarah Smarsh, many vaccinated Americans are tired, disgusted, and eager to assign blame. Um, she, she lives in Kansas and has a lot, it's a red state. A lot of, uh, her relatives, uh, for political reasons, uh, aren't getting vaccinated. She says she went through COVID rage in the end though. She says it's just not a healthy emotion. Um, and and she uh, urges those who fervently believe in the vaccine to just try it one by one to to convince the people around you and not engage in this rage. I want let, let me ask you this: um, If anybody w- were maybe prone to COVID rage, it would be medical people, wouldn't it? I, I would imagine you're, you're <laughs> you guys are in danger all the time. Well, that's that's kind of you to think about that, and I appreciate. You remembering us and you know i would you know i would be lying if i didn't say that conversations like that came up at the hospital you know and simultaneously um i like i i can't be angry at all these people who who would prefer not to get vaccinated because many of them are people i love and that's the way my coworkers feel too you know they're they're i think we've all experienced moments of frustration uh but I think it comes back to, you know, <laughs> this, this, this bifurcating us into two groups, you know, the, the, those who believe and those who don't, those who will get vaccinated, those who won't. Like, I don't think it's helpful. And I think what Sarah Smarsh is getting at is, you know, rather than, you know, being angry at folks who see things differently than you do, sometimes those folks are in our own neighborhoods and in our own families. Like, can we have a way to have those conversations across the back fence or, you know, on the phone or at dinner where we say, you know, here's why I've made the decision I have. Tell me why you feel differently. And I think there's a lot for all of us to learn in those conversations and to approach it from, you know, a sense of, you know, community and love and regard for the person, uh, not you know, here's why I think you're wrong. <laughs> and and I this goes to something I've thought a lot about in the pandemic, which is that it has stretched all of us to get outside of our comfort zones. And like I don't like all this all this polarization. I don't like how difficult it's made things. But it's kind of given us all a senior seminar in listening to and trying to understand people who feel differently than we do. And I think it's made all of us get more articulate about our own beliefs and also hopefully more understanding and able to listen to people and to talk with people who feel differently than we do. I think in a circumstance like this, we can both go to our own camps and, like, puff our chests and say, I'm right and you're wrong. Or we can say, the world might depend on us meeting in the middle somewhere, and how can we do that in our neighborhood and trust that someone else is doing it in theirs? I want to talk now a little bit about the you know the science of the vaccines. Uh, so specifically, the role of vaccines. Uh, my understanding early on was that this was primarily to prevent the disease. Uh, 
Now I'm hearing that it, maybe it's uh, a little less effective in that, although you know there is some some prevention, but it but that it does lessen the severity of the disease if you get it. Uh, or and maybe I don't know. Did, would this lessen the spread? So maybe talk a little bit about the what the role of the vaccine is. Well, I think the the both things are true. The larger percent of a population that gets vaccinated, the more you're simply preventing the disease, because that virus, which its job is to replicate and survive, has nowhere to go, <laughs> because because the, the the body of the population is vaccinated. So there is. Profound, profound and complete prevention, you know, that, that's how we wiped out smallpox. Um, you know, measles was close to being gone. Bumps was close to being gone. But that just, that, that involves everybody getting immunized. The other part of your question is about, you know, what, what do these COVID vaccines do? Um, from the very start, they were, uh, although they have, like, the the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine were touted as having 95% uh, effectiveness. That was never against uh, c- contracting the disease at all. That was 90 to 95% effectiveness against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And so uh, I-, I think that's part of what wasn't communicated really well uh, w- w- with the public. Uh, and I think the vaccines have been a, a profound success in terms of that. And you know, in terms of of protecting people from severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And I can speak to that directly because, you know, the vast majority of folks I'm taking care of in the hospital right now who have COVID are unimmunized. But when I occasionally see someone who is immunized, it's a completely different disease. Um, These are people that we give a little bit of support to and go home the next day. They aren't people who end up intubated on day six and seven and on ECMO 20 days later and, and, you know, dead a month later. So it's, uh, the, 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 the protection is, is, uh, is profound. And, uh, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, the, does the protection either from having had the disease or being vaccinated, does that wane over time? We, we think so. You know, I think everyone who has the disease has, uh, will have some uh, kind of native immunity for a few months. We're learning that that doesn't last as long as we hoped. You know, if you had COVID last fall and think, oh, I'm, I'm safe, there's a good chance you could get it again this winter um, because that, that, that natural immunity doesn't last as long as we hoped. And, you know, we're, we're learning in real time. And these new vaccines have been life-saving, but we are we are progressing day by day and learning how long that protection lasts. And, you know, we are discovering that some of that protection uh, wanes and that we may need boosters. And to some degree, that's no different from other, uh, from vaccines for other illnesses. And that's partly because viruses survive by mutating and, and the, 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 the mutant that is the most successful is the one that goes on. And so, we're always trying to, to, to catch that a little bit. And so, you know, my sense is that there, there will be some, uh, you know, change in how, in, in potency over time, and that some uh, boosters may be necessary, but I don't see that as necessarily any different from other diseases. But I think protection does continue, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and and even if um, 
even if it uh, even if it wanes a little bit, uh, it's it's still much better to have the vaccine than to not. And I just go back to that first person account in the emergency room. You know, like the the, the patients I've seen who are unimmunized are far sicker than than the folks who have had uh, have been immunized. What would you say to folks? I, I hear some folks saying, "Well, I, I don't know. I don't trust it because the the rollout of this particular vaccine was so rapid." Um, yeah, and uh, and it's uh, you know it's 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 new technology as well, isn't it? Uh, it is, and I I understand you know people's anxiety, and you know it's it's a big decision to choose to put something into your body. That's that's not easy, but. Uh, and 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 this you know was new technology this go around and I think one thing that's happened in the pandemic is that we the kind of learning uh, both in terms of like the science that's been invented the the on the ground research that's happening to figure out how to protect us from the vaccine has happened at an extraordinary rate um, the, the kinds of things that usually take you know a decade have happened in months. And I can understand that that can feel kind of dizzying for folks. The, the other thing that's happened, I think, is that the kind of science literacy required to understand all of this, we've all been on a very steep learning curve about what is this bug? What can it do to us? How do we protect ourselves? And sometimes that can uh, be overwhelming, and I understand that it can, uh, you know, give give people pause. But I think the other way to look at it also is that there are extraordinarily smart people who like solved something that has plagued humans since the beginning of time, you know, and found a solution to kind of stop this virus in, you know, less than a year. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, kudos to that. And I can talk more about the specific vaccines if you'd like me to, but that kind of, I think it's important to take that overarching view. Like I, I don't, on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, this all happened so fast, like that's kind of scary. Or you could say, this all happened so fast, holy cow, we pulled together as a society, you know, really smart folks banded together to come up with some solutions. This is something we can be really proud of. And that that's how I feel. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yes, would you t- talk a little bit uh, specifically about the, the vaccinations? So most... Like the old-fashioned way to make a vaccine was that you isolated a little piece of the bacteria or the virus that caused the infection in a laboratory. You you usually killed it, and then you put that vaccine or that little piece of that bug into, like we call it a diluent, into some kind of mixture that you could inject into someone's body. And then when your immune system encounters that little foreign, you know, bit of stuff that they know doesn't belong in sight. You know, your immune system says, whoa, that doesn't belong to me. Stranger danger. I don't like that. And they make a bunch of antibodies to fight that foreign-looking, you know, object. And then should you encounter the disease later, the your, your body already has a little host of, uh, has a little army ready to combat that specific uh, you know, invader. We, we call it that invader an antigen. Uh, and that's the way the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was man- manufactured. That's the way influenza vaccines are manufactured. That's the way vaccines that most of our kids get as they're growing up are manufactured. Um, the, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were made 
a little bit differently in that uh, rather than injecting a little piece of the COVID molecule for your body to recognize, you know, a, a killed piece of the COVID molecule, they instead uh, inject a little piece of RNA that tells your body how to make that little molecule. And so they kind of turn your body into a little factory for that tiny little tidbit of the virus. And then your body does the same thing that that it would have done had uh, that little tidbit been injected from an outside source. It says, this is very bizarre. This is very weird. I don't recognize this. It doesn't belong. And they build an army of antibodies to fight it. So in some ways, those mRNA va- uh, vaccines just turn your own body into a little bit of the manufacturing site for for the vaccine and what you're asking it to do. And the, that all sounds kind of crazy and, you know, Frankenstein-like science and new age and 22nd century and whatever else. Um, but the the fantastic part is that making a vaccine like this is really very, it, it's revolutionary and it's kind of an amazing idea because now that we have DNA sequencing, we can take a DNA sequence from anything and turn it into a vaccine very, very, very quickly. And that's part of what let these vaccines get off the ground so quickly. And it's also part of what will help us combat uh, different variants if we need to make different forms of the vaccine. If you just joined us, so we're talking with Dr. Marion Bishop. She is an emergency room doctor, works at Cache Valley Hospital and Brigham City Community Hospital. We're talking about the pandemic, COVID-19, all things related uh, today. And it's uh, the fall member drive. And so let's make another transition, Dr. Bishop, um, before we go to break, uh, put on your UPR member hat here. Um, uh, the question, I guess, uh, for you at this point is, what does public radio do for you? Why, why do you support it? What does it do for you? Oh, thank you. That's a nice question. I was anticipating last night that you might ask me some of these kinds of things, and I jotted down a few notes of uh, about what, how I might answer these questions. And one of them is is personal. It's that uh, you know sometimes I will leave the emergency room and I will be exhausted. Um, it's taxing. It's trying. I work with amazing people, but it's been a challenge in this last year. That's uh, we're, we're happy to have done, but that has not always been easy. And there's something very reassuring about getting in the car and turning on the radio. And for me, it's about realizing that there's another world out there, that everything is not the hospital. <laughs> you know, hearing news from across, you know, the world, hearing news uh, locally, Um, Hearing something that has nothing to do with science or medicine, you know, hearing a review of a great book or a new piece of music, uh, you know, hearing how, you know, somebody in another country is, you know, dealing with a local political issue. Like, all of it reminds me that I'm a citizen of the world and that whatever, you know, stress I've encountered is just part of a you know, I'm, I'm just one piece on a much bigger planet and makes me kind of feel more whole and more part of that larger world community when I leave the hospital and reminds me that it's not all what I've just left. Well, if uh, you agree with Marion Bishop, uh, you think about the things that public radio, Utah Public Radio does for you, the things, the driveway moments and the, the other moments that, that, that you've had, the information that you've received, the, the enjoyment, uh, entertainment. 
Um, and uh, we're asking you to take a critical step and become a member or renew your membership to Utah Public Radio. Assign a dollar value to your listening, and it can be as small or as large as it will fit into your budget. And we pool our resources, and we're able to pay for these programs. And so it's a critical, impactful step. And we hope while you're thinking about it, maybe you'll make that call right now. Uh, so if it's the morning time, you can call 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or you can go online to upr.org, upr.org, or on our UPR app. So upr.org or the UPR app. And it uh, just takes a couple of minutes out of your day, some basic information, how much you'd like to pledge, how, how, mu- how you'd like to take care of it. And uh, then you've, you've taken care of that critical step, and uh, you'll have satisfaction becoming a member of Utah Public Radio. Hope you do, do that. And there's a lot of thank you gifts as well. You can look at those as well online, upr.org, upr.org. We'll have more following this break. UPR partners with USU's College of Science presenting a free public panel discussion featuring USU biology faculty member and medical ethicist Andy Anderson, former hospice nurse Pat Sadowski, and family practice physician Dr. Matt Welter. Panelists will discuss physician-assisted dying currently legal in a number of U.S. states and how this practice might be implemented in Utah. That's Friday, October 1st at 7 p.m., broadcasting online at usu.edu science. Hi, I'm Franco Ordonez, White House correspondent for NPR. Having access to information serves as an equalizer. That is why UPR is introducing a 24-7 news, music, and community broadcast service for listeners who prefer connecting through programs available in Spanish. UPR Tres provides facts about health, education, and business heard in Spanish anytime, anywhere. Details at upr.org. We are nearing the end of our hour with uh, Dr. Marion Bishop. Uh, She's an emergency room doctor who works at Cache Valley Hospital and Brigham City Community Hospital. She's also a writer, and you can find some of her writing at her website, MarionCBishop.com, MarionCBishop.com. Dr. Bishop, I want to, uh, this will be a brief segment here at the end. Um, I want to uh, talk about our future and where perhaps the pandemic is headed uh, I want to read this from a, uh, a blog post that you uh, made. I think this is in the spring. The other day, uh, this is Marion Bishop. The other day in the car, my son asked when COVID would be over. Before I could even answer, my daughter said, COVID will never be over, will it, Mom? And then continued, the pandemic will eventually end, but COVID, the sickness, will never go away, right? But even as I answered, I knew we were talking about more than just the disease, that the personal and political sequelae of uh, COVID would always be with us in ways that we were just beginning to understand. So first of all, um, define the word sequelae. I had to look it up. Oh, that's a sort of medical term, and it means like what happens in sequence, uh, you know, um, oh my goodness, how to, how to explain this, like y- y- you... Uh, my mind is kind of going blank. You have an initial illness, and then there's a complication of it, and then there's a complication of the complication, ah. and then there's kind of a follow-up to that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like you have uh, pneumonia, and then you may have some compromised lung function afterwards. Uh, and Or, you know, if you're a smoker, you might be more, you know, you might get COPD, and then you are more likely to even have pneumonia. So it, it it's like a... a like there are future consequences of a single disease that we don't always fully understand. Things that come in sequence. 
Yeah. And that's like a sequel, a sequel to the, to the disease, and it can be plural. Yeah. Um, so what a, uh, let me ask it this way. Um, I, I learned another new word the other day, and that's endemicity, en- endemic, in other words. Uh, is that where we're headed with this, that, uh, that, that um, you know, once either everybody's vaccinated or has had, the, had COVID-19, that our, collectively our immune systems are no longer naive to, to this uh, virus, and it then just becomes like the flu and the cold, and we just have the COVID season? Yes, and I, I, that's my understanding. That's my sense of where it's going, and that's where a lot of other scientists think it is as well, that, you know, at some point, everyone will have either had COVID, everyone on the planet will have either had COVID or they will have been immunized against it, and then it will just kind of roam out there, and we will have kind of outbreaks, and it will come back from time to time, and uh you know, and, and, and we will see it return. And that's that's called an endemic illness. You know, the, the, the flu is endemic. Lots of things are endemic. They, they just keep coming back. But the thing that is different about an endemic illness versus a pandemic, and particularly one from a novel, which means new, you know, a virus, like, like the pandemic has been a big deal, and it became a pandemic because this was a kooky little virus that none of us had ever seen before. None of our immune systems had ever seen it. And so it could wreak profound havoc on the world, on individuals in terms of their health, in terms of, uh, and on a larger scale in terms of, you know, financial markets and, and uh, you know, governments, because everyone encountered it at the same time. And that's how you create a pandemic is with a new or novel virus. So, you know, the, the, the endemicity doesn't mean that it's going to be like this forever. <laughs> it means that, you know, we're going to we're gonna kind of rock and roll through this miserable time until everyone's exposed or immunized, and then it will kind of hang out in our closets and every once in a while, you know, creep out and, and, and pop up again. Mm. Just have about a minute left, but I'm intrigued by that uh, second paragraph, what I read. I'll, I'll just read it again. You're responding to what your daughter said, that the COVID, the sickness will never go away. And uh, you said, I, uh, even as I answered, I knew we were talking about more than just the disease. The personal and political sequelae of COVID would always be with us in ways we were just beginning to understand. Uh, what are a couple of those ways, do you think? Well, I think we have some choice over that. I mean, some people have consequences of COVID that they would never have chosen. Some people have lost family members. Some people have lost jobs and businesses. Some people's lives have been turned upside down in a way that, that we, you know, they're going to struggle for a while to recover from, if ever. Um, but, but most of us have a chance to say, what do I want to take away from this experience? What do I want to take away from this, this last you know, a couple of years that it will probably be before we're done, you know? Do I want to be, you know, bitter and hardened? Or do I want to have learned from that how to be a kind of community member that I can be proud of? How did I show up for my neighbors? How did I talk to my children about this? You know, did I did I kind of encourage the divisions? Did I try and meet with people that I might not have ever talked to before and learn something from them? So, you know, it's it's going to be with us for a long time, but what we let that do to us, I think, is up to us. Do I want to let it harden my position, or, or do I want it to open me up to learning all kinds of things I might not have been able to until it came along? 
Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, uh, Marion Bishop. Uh, always a pleasure. It works at Cache Valley Hospital and Brigham City Community Hospital, emergency room doctor there. And you can find her writing uh, at MarionCBishop.com, MarionCBishop.com. So, Dr. Bishop, you know, maybe your, your last quick appeal here to fellow listeners uh, to, to become members of UPR. Well, I, I think that kind of throughout the conversation, there's been this point about community, and I think a strong local radio station is an important part of community, not because it, we always might be comfortable with what we learn, but because we're uncomfortable. And there's so many sources of media right now, and figuring out how to listen to a variety of them and to learn from each of them, I think is a is a is a skill my, you know, Utah studies and you know civics teachers in high school would have been very very proud, uh, or you know, to have their students learn and supporting a local media station that can give us uh, an opportunity to have certain information and then learning how to sift that through the other information we get. Is, a, is something I really value, and it's worth, worth keeping you all going, Tom. I think you're an important part of, of the community and help us, help us build and learn together. Well, thanks for what you're doing, important work you're doing, and uh, appreciate you taking some time to be with us here on Access Utah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, here's the uh, the website as we go out uh, where you can pledge your support. Join your support with uh, Marion Bishops. UPR.org, 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 or you can go on our UPR app and uh, just a couple minutes out of your day uh, to take care of that. Thank you uh, so much. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here as we look up, look around, and let's get lost in space, huh? As we look into the west, we can do it from Earth here. Look at the orange-pink dusk. We can see bright Venus just above all this, which is getting just a bit higher every night. And looking south and east, the moon grows and hovers in the blue, moving toward the harvest moon on the 20th. The harvest moon in the northern hemisphere is the full moon closest to the autumnal equinox. This year, the autumnal equinox comes on September 22nd at 1.21 in the afternoon as summer officially slips into fall. Yeah, already. And the moon, as it grows toward full, will be hanging near Jupiter and Saturn in the southeast. The solar system's biggest planets are still at their closest visual peak for the year. If you get up in the slick rock outside of Moab or by a river or lake in the dark along the Wasatch Front, you might be able to pick out the moons of Jupiter with binoculars, even with the blazing moon nearby or even in the city. I watch them a bit every night when I can, and the four visible Galilean moons change positions every night. Kind of fun to see what weird configuration the cosmic laws are going to be in next. Nearby to the right, the tilted rings of Saturn change as well. And speaking of Jupiter, the big planet got whacked again. Southeastern Brazilian observer Jose Luis Pereira captured a bright flash on the solar system's largest planet Monday night, the 13th, witnessing the fiery evaporation of a space rock high in the Jovian atmosphere. Mr. Pereira watches the planets every night in southeastern Brazil and was filming this when it happened. Way to go. Jupiter gets smacked quite a bit, as you may know. It orbits close to the main asteroid belt and has tremendous gravitational pull. You may remember this in July 1994. Remember Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9? Breaking up and the fragments tore apart holes in Jupiter that lasted for months. We watched this with telescopes in front of Hansen Planetarium as one of them plowed into Jupiter one after another. This opened a window below the cloud tops and astronomers studied the impact sites, discovering a deeper understanding of the gas giant's atmospheric composition. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's many cultures, one sky. And let's visit Brazil, where everyone looks up and around. This from Beatriz Garcia from May 19th, 2020, published in Aldea. 
In May of 2020, the Brazilian city of Maje, just north of Rio de Janeiro, made headlines for something as exciting as a sighting of orbs floating and disappearing and reappearing. Thousands of people witnessed and uploaded videos showing luminous orbs of blue, red, and yellow moving across the sky. Hmm, that's kind of amazing. And from NASA Science History, the night sky is filled with stories. Cultures throughout history have projected some of their most enduring legends onto the stars above. Generations of people see these stellar constellations, hear the associated stories, and pass them down. This one is the Brazilian constellation of the Old Man, long recognized by the Tupi people of native Brazil. The Old Man is composed of the beautiful and sparkly strand of stars that run from a star cluster called the Hyades, it's in Taurus the Bull, running through Orion and on above to the Seven Sisters or Pleiades. Check out an image and a link to check that out, and all the resources for this episode. So keep the imagination soaring, look up, look around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. You're listening to UPR, Utah Public Radio, with translator stations statewide and streaming live.